Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Mitten Politics, where change is political. I'm your host, Ian Duncanson. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about unions, uh, kind of focusing on what they are, how they impact people, etc. Um, I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand the, the depth of the impact that unions have. When you think about having a, the idea of a minimum wage, the idea of a 40-hour work week, eight-hour work days, things of that nature, um, those concepts came because of union advocacy. The entire purpose of a union is advocating for working conditions of employees and also getting employees to agree to certain, certain procedures in conjunction with their employer. And we'll talk more about this. Uh, but unions really can be a strong positive force um, in, in really bringing people together in solidarity to advocate for things. One of the things we don't cover in this episode is that you may see unions that get involved in political advocacy and lobbying. Um, that is all done. Uh, we discussed this a little bit after the episode, but that is all done uh, through political action committees which cannot use any union dues money in order to do that advocating. So um, when you think about, you know, a union endorsing a particular candidate or a particular piece of legislation, that is not using union dues from the members that are contributing to their local union. That is something that's on a larger scale where these political action committees are receiving donations to advocate for specific causes for those in their workforce. And that's an important piece as well, because the, if you think about the unions in a particular industry, they are the ones most qualified to understand how legislation is going to impact the workers in that industry. And so I, I'm very pro-union. I think that uh, more unions should exist, and I'm glad to see more unions forming. I think that many of us have a lot, uh, a lot to thank unions for in terms of our wages and our working condition requirements and things, some of which has been uh, you know, federally or state mandated now as, as basic requirements, thinking about getting paid overtime over 40 hours a week for many positions um, and, and looking at what, what is required for even salary employees who may not fit within some of the same uh, union requirements depending on the industry. One other thing I just wanna mention um, because of course things are always going on in the background, uh, although it's not necessarily directly related to this episode, we have to we have to push for this fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage. Uh, I I can't bear to see this this conversation uh, sputter out. And there are a lot of progressive legislators advocating for this. There were um, eight Democrats in the Senate who voted against Bernie Sanders' attempt to add it into the COVID relief bill. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't realize that a minimum wage is part of this pandemic relief. When you think about getting people back to work, those who are making minimum wage are no longer just a basket of high schoolers who are working part-time to save a little spending cash before they go to college. These jobs are worked largely by uh, women, by people of color, um, and there are a, a lot of people working multiple jobs at minimum wage just to scrape by. 
Minimum wage at $7.25 an hour comes out to around $15,000 a year as a salary. Think about what it would be like to live on $15,000 a year. And, you know, even if you get a second job, now you're only making 30000 or a little over 30000 a year and working 80 hours a week for that. It's just, it's barbaric. And it's time that we, we enact some change. So I highly recommend that you look into uh, what unions are doing, that you pay attention to what's being done for workers, because there are a heck of a lot more workers than there are employers. And when you think about uh, the impact that uniting workers can have, we've seen it in strikes, instances of strikes. And one of the things unions can do is stand in solidarity with other unions to uh, make strikes more impactful by impacting multiple industries and forcing humane conditions. That is the point. Unions are not greedy. People who are a part of unions are not greedy. But they know that to have employees working for a wage that is not a living wage is outrageous, especially when you look at many of the companies, uh, you know, looking at public companies where their CEOs are, you know, owning private jets and making millions and billions of dollars of profit um, while their employees are struggling just to get by. And so $15 an hour is the minimum that we should be asking for. And really, by the time it would even get enacted by current legislation, it would already be too little again. So this is a conversation we need to continue to have. And I'm sorry to uh, give this little rant at the beginning, but I think it's important to talk about when we talk about unions, when we talk about workers' rights, when we talk about what corporate America owes the workers that build their companies, that earn them their profits. This is something that, that does need to continue to be talked about and fought for. And hopefully this pandemic, if, if nothing else, will open more people's eyes to the real needs to make change. This whole BS theory of the invisible hand of the market that is going to uh, naturally increase people's wages and working conditions and standards of living um, simply because the market will drive that has shown not to work. And so unions step in and, and meet halfway in trying to establish the basic minimum conditions required. So with that, I will end it there and we're gonna dive in. I'm talking with Tim Chikorsky today, who is the, uh, the president of Union Local 1809 for the American Federation of State, County and Municipal Employees. Uh, AFSCME. Uh, he's also a Royal Oak School Board member who was elected last uh, in the last election cycle and has a lot of really great insight um, about unions and what they can do for us. And so let's go ahead and dive in here. All right, I'm here today with Tim Chikorsky, who is the president of the Union Local 1809 for Ask Me which is the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. Uh, so thank you so much for joining me today. Of course. So I wanted to do this episode because I think a lot of people misunderstand unions or have heard only vague uh, politicized statements about what unions are and, and 
who they benefit, what they do and things like that. So I kind of wanted to talk about some of those uh, different elements today. Um, and so just to kind of get started, let's kind of define what unions are. So what would you, uh, what would you say unions are if someone asked you to kind of explain, uh, explain why, what a union is? I think probably the easiest and most simple explanation of a union is just a collection of employees in a common employer who've come together to form a union, which <clears throat> will then allow them to negotiate for their wages, for their benefits, for all these things that are going to benefit them that also would benefit the employer. But I mean, really the easiest way of explanation is it's a group of employees with a common interest in their employment. Yeah, um, that's that would be uh, kind of my understanding as well. I was a part of a union uh, back when I worked at Kroger <laughs> growing up um, and uh, they were the uh, United Food and Commercial Workers Union, uh, which covered more than just Kroger grocery stores. And we'll talk about a little bit of like the different types of unions. Um, but there were, you know, from what I was able to understand was, you know, they fought for certain um, base level conditions of employment, uh, safety precautions in some cases, um, wages at certain levels that were contractually uh, built in instead of it being more of that kind of uh, favoritism element being potentially involved. Um, but what I, I was never really sure of are are the people who actually like run the union, are they employees of these different companies or are they actually sort of employees of the union itself? Well, it's funny you mentioned the um, food workers. I was a, one of my first jobs, I was working at a restaurant and we were all really angry one day. Like, this is dumb. We're all going to unionize. And I actually had a write-up in my file for like five years for threatening oh, to wow. the restaurant. Yeah, so um, to answer your question, the union within the employer, within the company you're working for, your local will typically elect their own officers. So I, as you stated, I am the president of AFSCME 1809. So I was elected president by my coworkers. And we have a secretary treasurer who's essentially second in charge of our local. And then we have elected stewards who would basically go in with you if you had some kind of discipline issue at work. And then the higher up levels within the union, those are also elected. It's very democratic, the entire union structure. I believe all of them are this way. That you'll elect delegates from your local who will then elect the higher ups there, then those delegates will go ahead all the way up to the very top of the union where you have the president of the entire umbrella organization. Okay, that's really helpful. Yeah, I, I never really thought about like the, the kind of the microstructures that build up and, and support, like you said, like democracy supporting the, um, the higher up through representation all the way down to the bottom level. Um, so, and so, you know, we talked a little bit about, um, the, I, like I mentioned, the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Um, your union, Ask Me, is that's that's an acronym to pronounce, um, which we said uh, covered state, county, and municipal employees. Um, so, what what 
how does that cover you? Like what is your employer that that covers? And then what are some of the other employers that people might recognize in the area that might be covered by that same union? Um, our union, I work as a clerk at a district court. So we're all encompassed under AFSME, as well as many of the county clerks, the clerical workers, and a lot of the DPS workers throughout the counties are all covered by my union, as well as we have very large locals that are janitorial within hospitals and all kinds of things you wouldn't even think of. And a lot of unions, just based on their name, you wouldn't think that they would represent the people that they do. You know, the Macomb County prosecutors are, they were at one point represented by the Teamsters. Okay. When you think unions, you think Teamsters and you think of mm -hmm. the men and women who are driving the trucks, carrying your cars from the plants to the dealerships. And I think now they're actually fall under the UAW. So you okay. workers represent things other than auto workers, such as county prosecutors and others of that like. Okay, yeah, that's helpful. Um, would that include like state employees, state of Michigan employees? Are they typically union or? Yeah, we do have a lot of state employees also, mostly clerical or support staff. Okay. Throughout the gotcha. state. Yeah, I think the UAW is probably the one that most listeners will know just immediately off the top of their head because there's a lot of talk about that, especially here in the Metro Detroit area. We talk a lot about the UAW. So yeah, that definitely. Was, that people are very familiar with as well. Um, so kind of how you made a joke about um, essentially being retaliated against for trying to form a union at, uh, at work when you were younger. Um, but kind of in a real sense, I know we hear a little bit about um, Amazon workers in Alabama are trying to start a union. Um, I, I believe there's been similar efforts in California at times for some of the bigger companies, Google, things like that. Um, and so what, what does that look like if somebody decides I want to form a union, like for real, what are, what types of steps do people typically take for something like that? I think the easiest thing to do is reach out, find a union that you would think best represents your work, best represents your work staff, reach out to them. They have people who their full-time job is organizing. So reach out to an organizer, they're gonna help you get these steps started. Legally, you cannot be retaliated against for trying to form a union. Doesn't always end up that way. And you need to have 50% plus one of your workforce either vote to have an election for representation or a lot of unions use what they call a card drive. So they'll have you sign a card saying, yes, I, Tim, want to be in a union, here's my card. Because I'm not positive what the statute of limitation is on that card, but they do expire. But if you can collect 50% plus one of those employees of that workforce, you can force an election for representation. You know, one of the biggest companies that, again, here in Detroit area we're probably familiar with is Delta Airlines. Mm -hmm. They took over, bought out Northwest Airlines, which was a union carrier. The Delta flight attendants were not ever unionized. There's constantly a huge push by those former Northwest employees to try to 
unionized. And every time they get really close, the company will step in and they'll offer these huge packages to people saying, look, you don't need a union because we're giving you $1,500 this month just because. We're going to give you this bonus just because you don't need a union. I think they're so afraid of having a union on property that they're going to do whatever they can to keep that number just under 50% so they can get it to a vote. Gotcha. Yeah. So instead of instead of punishing employees who are trying to unionize, they're taking a route of trying to essentially bribe employees to not unionize. Correct. Yeah. And that's what going on for years. Well, and I've heard of of com- some companies. Obviously, you know, the legally, technically, you can't retaliate against people for unionizing. But I've also heard companies. Um, indicate that like they're going to shut an entire plant if people unionize because they won't be able to um they 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 won't be able to keep up with whatever they expect the union's demands are going to be or the added costs they perceive um is that something that's technically illegal or is that kind of within the bounds of what a company can decide to do if they want to avoid unionizing I mean, I believe I don't know this for fact or legally know this, but I do believe a company can do what they want to do with their company. The funny thing is with that argument, though, is if you look at any unionized workforce, you'll see that you have less employees, so your employee cost is technically less, and you have far more productive employees once they're unionized than you had prior to there being a union on property. Sure. And like I you can said, see that. one of the misconceptions that unions come in and they jack up the cost and it's impossible for a company to run, which is in fact quite the opposite, that you're getting more productivity out of your employees than you did prior. Sure. Well, because there's that element of solidarity and being in it together and a little bit more commitment to a mutual relationship between employee and employer when you have a union versus it being all at the whim of whatever the employer decides based on, you know, their, their top line profits and things like that. Um, all right. Well, that's cool um, to know. I know um, there are more movements right now for, for unions to be formed and that's heartening to see because I know we went through an intense period of union busting um, where a lot of unions kind of fell apart. A lot of union union guaranteed benefits were stripped of people. Um, one one other thing, um, you know, kind of in this movement, as as unions are con- starting to form again, and and we see this more happening more frequently, is, for example, that uh, Amazon group down in Alabama. So if they vote to unionize, they don't have to have fifty percent plus one of all Amazon employees, do they? They just need 50% plus one of their local workforce? Yeah, of that facility. Okay, gotcha. Because I was going to say, I feel like there. I've also heard that there are sometimes within one company, there might be some unionized workers and some non-union workers, um, kind of depending on the locations of where they're at. Yeah, definitely there are. Okay, that's good to know. So um, you alluded a little bit already to kind of how unions can actually benefit the company. Um, Unions uh, can obviously benefit their workers um, in in ways advocating for them and protecting them and things like that. Um, I I would even argue that to some degree unions benefit the, the 
the larger workforce, um, even those who are non-unionized, especially in the same industries, because they kind of set certain standards that um, in, in a way force other employers who are non-unionized to match what's being offered by some of the union employers in order to stay competitive for getting employees. Have you, have you it, does that sound right to you? Is that something that you've witnessed um, in your experience? No, I think you're absolutely correct. I think even going back to, I'm sure every year around Labor Day, you'll see the Facebook memes that say, oh, enjoy your 40 day, 40 hour work week, enjoy these holidays off, enjoy this, enjoy that, thank a union. Those are all benefits that were originally negotiated by a union, your workplace safety, all those things did come from a union that did force all those other places that weren't unionized to follow suit and they're going to have to follow those or they're not going to have employees. I think the um, union is obviously very beneficial to the employees within that union. And it does offer protections to the employer as well. I think it's beneficial to the employer that you've got your work group and they've decided this is what they're agreeing to do. Then you have this agreement with your employer. So then they have these protections saying the employees say they're going to do this and this is how they're going to do it. Whereas the employees have that same agreement from the employer. The employer is agreeing to do A, B, and C because the employees have agreed to do D, E, and F. Right. So you have that mutual protection on both sides there as well. Which I think going back to your question does lead into other employers that aren't unionized do kind of do the same thing. Whereas you don't have that necessary protection that you can be let go for whatever reason. When you're not unionized, when you're in a union shop, you know that they have to follow these steps. Yeah, and, and it, you know, when you're working with a union, one of the arguments that I think people sometimes have is that, oh, well, you know, coworker X never does anything and they can't, they haven't fired them because of this darn union that won't let them get fired. And I think that that's unfortunately one of the popular narratives um, that, that goes around in anti-union conversations is that they, oh, they protect people who are bad at their job and let them be lazy because of the protection of this union. But in my experience, that was definitely the minority experience. Um, you know, I, of course, those types of things can happen. And sometimes depending on how the employee, what the employee is doing and how they're framing things and who has, it, has their back, um, it can be difficult to let an employee go. But on the flip side, it also makes it really um, safe for employees who might uh, worry about on a whim, the boss not liking them or um, you know, you know, things that are maybe protected um, so that you can't just let someone go because they rub you the wrong way or because they're, um, I, I, and I don't know, maybe some, maybe you know from your experience, if your union has clauses about like discrimination and things like that, um, LGBTQ employees are, you know, have you seen protections for those that have come out of union doctrine or is that more of like a state and local kind of law um, that's external to what unions might do? I think it's probably much more external than a union. A union is very much, this is going to happen for every single person, regardless of who you are. 
And to your example of the lazy employee not getting fired because they're protected by a union, which is a huge narrative that you hear all the time. And I equate that to the same as people saying, well, these people collecting public assistance are the ones that are showing up at the grocery store in their fancy cars. Right. Like that may happen, it may not happen, who knows. But the glory of a union is that the employer has to have just cause to let that employee go. Yeah. So that employee is protected by the contract. And if the union's trying to save this lazy person's job, it's most likely that the employer's not following the contract to get rid of that person. The contract gives you step by step by step what you have to do to prove this person's not doing their job and to get rid of them. If the company can't do it properly per the contract is where I think a lot of people think that the union is saving that lazy person for being lazy, which is not the case. They're protecting their contractual rights that the company did not follow when they tried to terminate that person. Yeah, that makes sense that, you know, if you have a contract that outlines, you know, a uh, first offense, this happens, second offense, this happens, and you document it and follow that contract, then it makes sense. Whereas if you're trying to just kind of jump the gun and, and take it out on somebody um, without doing your, um, your work that, you're, that you agreed to do um, as an employer, then I can see where that would cause that conflict and make it difficult to let, let someone go. Um, Cool. So one of the union, uh, union terms that's thrown around a lot is collective bargaining, um, which we've talked a little bit about kind of um, the, the power of the people being able to negotiate what they need from the employer. Um, have you been involved in collective bargaining as a part of your, your local union? Um, or do you know what that process kind of looks like when, when they want to make changes? Yeah, for sure. I've um, actually negotiated, negotiated a airline contract when I worked for an airline and I negotiated the contract that I'm currently working under. So again, it's really important when you work for a union shop that you elect those people that you think are going to best represent your wishes when they're at that negotiating table. So what basically collective bargaining is, is when the union and management sit down and they just hash out the contract. The union will come in with, this is what we expect, this is what we want in the next contract. Management comes in with their same list. You'll swap lists, you look at them, you'll check them off, you're like, nope, nope, are you kidding me? Is this a joke? This is not gonna happen. They do the same thing. They come back with a complete X out piece of paper saying, we don't like any of this. We come back with the paper, eh, are you joking? We don't like <laughs> any of these things. And then it's just a back and forth. You pass things back and forth. Then you eventually come to an agreement that the negotiating committee and management has found to be an adequate contract. Then that agreement is brought to, well, first let me go back. When you come to an agreement with the company or management, it's called the TA, which is a tentative agreement, stating that the union and management have agreed on this contract. Okay. And bring that contract back to your union membership who has to vote on it. And again, it's a majority vote. So 50 plus one can pass a contract. Cool. I mean, cool. My contract passed unanimously the first time ever in that building. Nice. Little, Congratulations. Little, That's a good feeling. Accomplishment there. 
Um, how often do these contracts typically have to be renegotiated? Or, or I, I would assume that the contract is is designed to have like a an end point, a start point and an end point at which point you negotiate a new contract. But is there like a timeline for that, for how often that changes? Yeah, the um, length of the contract is usually very strategic between either union or management. And you negotiate your contract for as long as you think it's going to be. I think a lot of times you'll negotiate a shorter time contract if you don't think you're going to get everything you want and you think maybe conditions are going to change sooner rather than later, you're going to want to negotiate that contract again as quickly as possible to get more things for your membership. Whereas management may say, oh, times aren't so great right now. We're going to try to take all these things away from them. But then we want to extend this contract longer so we don't have to give that back to the work group anytime soon. So that's part of the contract that you negotiate, the time frame. Okay. That and makes my, sense. Yeah, my last contract we negotiated for two year span. Okay. And I can see where that, yeah, as as times change, as economic conditions change, as um, you know even industry conditions change, it it can be beneficial. I like I see what you're saying there. It can be beneficial sometimes to advocate for a longer contract or a shorter contract. And usually whatever the the employees and the union want is going to be a little bit different than what the industry or the, the employer, the management want. And so they're going to kind of find that middle ground also on how long the contract is going to go on for um, so that they have an opportunity to revisit that and adjust things. Awesome. Yeah, and, and with a contract, you do have the ability to when your contract is set to expire, you can go in and you can agree with management that, hey, why should we really go ahead and reopen this contract and try and negotiate something right now? Or should we just today agree that we're gonna extend this for one year or we're gonna extend this for two years? Okay. So you have that option to not actually renegotiate everything. You can just say, all right, we're just gonna continue what we have right now. Gotcha, that makes sense. Um, a lot of people who are opening contracts right now during COVID may choose to go ahead and say, eh, let's just keep this for another year. Let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Um, so what I guess what happens if the negotiating process goes on long enough that there's actually a lapse in contract? Would it just automatically extend the current contract until a new one is, is agreed upon? Yeah, typically you have the end date of the contract. So let's say your contract ends on December 31st, 2020, and you're still working on it. Everything that you had in that contract is going to continue until you have that new contract, as long as that process has been started, that you are negotiating. Okay. So my last contract expired, I think, four or five weeks before we had ratified the new contract. So everything just carried over. Okay, so it's not like a government shutdown where you have to live by continuing resolution to continuing resolution. <laughs> Please pay me. <laughs> uh, that's good. Um, so there is a lot of opposition to unions. Um, it, it kind of went through a wave where there was growing opposition to unions that I believe really started back with Reagan. Um, that was kind of one of the the places that it started um, this idea of 
um, unions are too strong and they control too much and they're too powerful and um, you know, and, and a lot of it was sentiment of people who are non-union, who are frustrated that union workers were getting certain benefits and things that they were not. And they felt, you know, well, I don't, um, I don't think they should get these, these benefits and things if I don't get it. Um, today, <laughs> we, it, it seems to have been a position that's more broadly adopted by conservatives being anti-union. We've seen that uh, with legislation and the, and the ways that unions are talked about. Why do you suppose that is? You mentioned Ronald Reagan, which is really funny that he had huge union support running for president. The air traffic controllers, which was one of the largest unions in the country at the time, I believe, threw everything they had behind Ronald Reagan. Like, this is our guy. We love this guy. And he got in, kind of turned their entire world upside down. But I think going back to so many things become so political for reasons that are really unknown. And let's equate it to mask wearing such a political issue that never should be a political issue. Kind of my opinion of unions. <clears throat> I don't understand why a political group would be so opposed to their neighbors or their family members making a living wage, making money that can support themselves. Whereas they're trying to take all these things away saying they're overpaid, they don't work, they're lazy. Going back to Elizabeth's conceptions, that union workers are useless and the unions just there to protect them and they're terrible for business. But again, if you don't have those dedicated employees making those products for you, you really don't have a business. Yeah, and I think- like The correlation there, I don't really understand why it is that way, but it is definitely there. Yeah, I one of the things that I, kn I know part of this whole anti-union movement has really, um, focused on is also people who are union employees and trying to make them feel like their unions don't benefit them. And so harping on this idea of you're paying union dues and what benefits are you really getting? And, um, you know, at working at a store like Kroger, where I was like a, a frontline customer service employee, um, you know, I, I started there as a bagger and worked in grocery and stuff like that. Um, when you're young, like I was at that time and you're new to the workforce and you don't really, it's, you know, I knew the importance of unions because we talked about them in my family. My parents were teachers and were part of the teachers union. Um, but some of my coworkers, they just, all they knew about the union was that they saw the union dues withdrawn from their paycheck. And so they didn't know like, how is the union actually negotiating anything for me? Whereas the employees who'd been there for a longer period of time um, had seen how wages had been in had increased and the contractual raises were built in and their jobs were protected and some of them had even had run-ins with um, a boss who did just didn't like them and they were able to be protected um, because they the boss needed probable cause to try and let them go and oftentimes the bosses rotated out faster than any of the other employees because the bosses the managers were not union um and so they they kind of cycled through at different paces um but it's it's disheartening to see that even people who are protected by unions sometimes don't understand what the union is actually doing to benefit them and it's hard to know sometimes if that's um 
uh, like a failure of unions to communicate with those employees about what what it is they are doing. Um, or if, I mean, obviously all unions are not created equal and don't necessarily um, have the same appeal to people depending on whether this is your career or a temporary thing. Um, so I think that's an element that, that gets factored in on that level. Yeah, I think one of the things that happened in Michigan is when it became a right to work state. At that point, you had full union protection, you had every single benefit that a dues paying member has, except you no longer had to pay your dues. Prior to that, Michigan, I believe the term is agency shop, is you could become a dues objector, which meant you paid a portion of your union dues, you didn't pay the whole thing, but you did pay what they considered money towards upholding your contract and negotiating your contract, like administrative cost almost. Okay. And yeah. now you can completely opt out say, I'm not paying union dues. I want to keep that $40 a month in my paycheck because why should I pay for it when I'm getting every single thing the union's doing and not paying for it? Yeah, Which and that is, whole thing you know, was- crazy to me and I call it, it's like stealing, it's stealing your union dues, it's stealing your pay rate. I'm like, you're a shoplifter, like all kinds of crazy things, but it's really yeah. true. You're like a and you're stealing from the union. You're not stealing from your company because your company is doing the same thing regardless. You're actually stealing from, in a sense, you're stealing from your coworkers um, when you do that because they're paying into something you're benefiting from but refusing to pay for. Exactly. Drives me crazy. Yeah. Um, the right to work laws are. are I know one of the major places those really got popular um, was in uh, Wisconsin under Scott Walker. He was notoriously known for being anti-union and advocating for these right to work laws. Um, and as Bernie Sanders calls them, the right to work for less. Because um, essentially what they're trying to do is undermine and weaken unions. And ultimately the goal is to have those unions fall apart. So then the companies can go back to not having to work with unions at all. Um, but th those right to work laws, like you, like you said, the idea that someone can, can work and benefit from what the union is negotiating as a contract for the employees, but not have to contribute to the cost of running that union is um, it is ludicrous. I, 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 you know, I, I would be all for if that employee wanted to opt out, but then maybe they have a separate, maybe they have to negotiate their own benefits with their employer one-on-one, -on -one, their own pay and benefits and things like that. If you're not going to pay, you shouldn't be covered under the same umbrella as all of these other people. Um, and the argument I think for those laws was just like, we can't force you to pay money into this. That's what the whole argument for those right to work laws is. You shouldn't be forced to pay part of your hard earned money into this, this organization. In my opinion is you don't need to pay for that organization. But I mean, notoriously, the people who aren't paying their union dues are the first ones to come to me with an issue. The first ones with a complaint. Really? These ones that say, oh, well, what's the union going to do about this? And my response is, I don't know, is it worth $40 a month to you? I mean, perhaps at that point, 
you can have a bigger opinion. I mean, the most unfortunate part is the union is required to represent these people, whether they're paying or not. Yeah, I can see the the people who are most concerned about what the union is or is not doing are the people who are not not paying, and that that shouldn't be allowed to happen. So, um, so there is some legislation uh, that's that's being pushed, and I I did a little research on this and and found that. It's actually become more common that when there's a democratic president specifically, unions do try to push for more legislation that supports union uh, procedures and uh, kind of who can unionize, making it easier to unionize, things like that. Um, but it sounds like this PRO Act is one of the, it's called the PRO Act. Um, and it's, it's designed to be pretty comprehensive and really take like multiple pieces that unions have been ha, have been asking for for decades and trying to put them into one piece of legislation um, that actually seems to have a chance now, potentially, depending on what happens, um, you know, and I, I have no doubt it'll pass the house with a democratic majority um, and the Senate, we'll see what happens there, what Democrats decide to do and, as you said before the meeting, it kind of depends on what side of the bed Joe Manchin wakes up on. <laughs> um, but I, I would like to see unions get the support that they need um, in you know, a couple notable things, making it easier, easier to unionize, um, solidifying penalties for uh, any retaliation against employees who are trying to form a union um, and, and kind of just bolstering their uh, their network and their reach so that they um, are not at at threat of these like these right to work laws and things like that. It helps to combat some of the that type of legislation. Um, have you done much much research about the PRO Act or are there some elements of that that you're you're really advocating for? Uh, well, the cool thing about it is it was actually proposed a year ago. It was February 2020. And passed the house, obviously, and then it just kind of went off and died. So in Mitch's graveyard, said <laughs> that maybe we do have a chance with this now that it's been reintroduced, and I'm sure it's going to pass again. And the other great thing is we have a president who campaigned and said that he will be the greatest advocate for labor that this country's ever seen. So I truly believe, I believe that he is a very strong labor supporter. And I think he's going to do everything he can to progress that agenda. But again, it depends on how far he can get things with, you would think a little easier with the slim majority that there is in the Senate. But again, that's no guarantee. Yeah. And then the accent for protecting the right to organize, which I think is perfect. Name yeah. Well. well, and I know Andy Levin was a co-sponsor in drafting that bill. Um, and he's our ninth district congressional representative here. Um, and so I know he's talked about that at a number of different meetings and um, Metro Detroit area in particular is there's a lot of union, union employees, you, uh, organizations that are unionized, et cetera, down in this area, um, which is not necessarily true of every portion of the country. Um, I would be interested to know for something like, you know, like West Virginia, where Joe Manchin is the lone Democrat to hold uh, statewide elected office. Um, 
I know there's a lot of like fossil fuel industry there, and I don't know to what degree any of them might be unionized, but I would think that in, in that type of environment that unionizing would be beneficial and that uh, potential, potentially the PRO Act would be in favor, um, you know, or majority of people in West Virginia might be in favor of, of pro-union legislation, but I'm not sure on that. Yeah, no, it seems like, I think you're right. I think it would be very beneficial to the industries there. Um, all right, so uh, what are some more, some resources that you would recommend for people who wanna maybe learn a little bit more about unions and unionizing? Um, if they, you know, wanted to, to either start one or I, I know you mentioned kind of like looking for unions that are in their industry, but um, are there any other resources that you can think of that that would be helpful if people wanted to kind of learn more about how to get involved? Yeah, I think definitely a um, good place to look would be the AFL-CIO website, which is basically the umbrella organization that the majority of the unions in the country do fall under. Let's say maybe 15 years ago or so, there was a slight break off of the AFL-CIO and I can't remember the name of the organization that they became, but I would say the majority of the unions are all AFL-CIO associated. And it would actually be a great resource also if you were looking to organize within your workplace, they can take you through step-by-step -step and get you in contact with the people that would be willing to help you. Great, yeah. Um, well, and I know um, the they work closely with uh, National Labor Relations Board, which is a federal agency um, in conjunction with the Secretary of Labor. All right, anything else that you wanted to add about the topic of unions? No, other than I'm really excited that you're covering unions right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's an important topic. I would like to see more unions uh, forming. Um, it's funny because I always think about like, well, I work for a credit union, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's not, not the same. Um, it's more of a union for the members, but. But thank you so much for taking the time to record this with me today. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you here and I hope you have a good rest of your weekend. Yeah, of course, thank you for having me. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you will uh, do a little more research to, to learn more about unions on top of this. Um, as Tim mentioned, look up the AFL-CIO uh, they are a really a great resource to learn about unions, to get into contact if you want to get involved. Um, you can donate to union political action committees if you so desire uh, to advocate for labor and labor's rights. Uh, think of unions and thank unions at the next Labor Day. Um, and thank you so much for listening to this. Um, if you have a topic you'd like me to cover, my email is mittenpolitics at gmail.com. You can send any questions, concerns, comments, or if there, again, are topics you would like me to cover, you can send them there. Um, also, I have an Instagram account uh, at mitten underscore politics and a Facebook page at mittenpolitics. So please follow and like those pages um, and share them with other people who you think might benefit from uh, listening or getting involved or may enjoy this information. Um, and I will leave it there and we'll see you again in a couple weeks.